Welcome to Just Listen, a celebration of literature from Nashville Public Library. For more stories and poetry, visit our website at library.nashville.org. Please feel free to leave a comment or to make requests or recommendations. And now, for today's selection. Turning once again to one of America's greatest fiction voices, we present today a story that displays Willa Cather's keen observation and understanding of men, particularly when they are placed in a locus of trouble or consternation. Two Friends has the structure and tone of a memoir. The story's narrator is an adult looking back on a three-year period of her youth during the 1890s, when two prosperous men in her small Kansas town, Mr. Dillon, a cattleman from Buffalo, and Mr. Truman, an Irish banker and owner of the town's general store, dominated her imagination. Readers interested in gender issues in Cather's fiction will notice the adolescent girl's choice of men instead of women for heroes, behavior reflecting Cather's own development at a young age. Incidentally, there is another story here on Just Listen entitled Two Friends by the French short story maestro Guy de Maupassant. What a contrasting characters and situations these two stories present in these tales of human struggle and the quest for human dignity. We hope you enjoy today's story, and we'll look back on the other and find increased enjoyment in the juxtaposition of these two authors' works. And now, Two Friends by Willa Cather. We begin. Part 1 Even in early youth, when the mind is so eager for the new and untried, while it is still a stranger to faltering and fear— we yet like to think that there are certain unalterable realities somewhere at the bottom of things. These anchors may be ideas, but more often they are merely pictures, vivid memories, which in some unaccountable and very personal way give us courage. The seagulls that seem so much creatures of the free wind and waves that are as homeless as the sea, able to rest upon the tides and ride the storm, needing nothing but water and sky. At certain seasons even they go back to something they have known before, to remote islands and lonely ledges that are their breeding grounds. The restlessness of youth has such retreats, even though it may be ashamed of them. Long ago, before the invention of the motor car, which has made more changes in the world than the war, which indeed produced the particular kind of war that happened just a hundred years after Waterloo, in a little wooden town in a shallow Kansas river valley, there lived two friends. They were businessmen, the two most prosperous and influential men in our community, the two men whose affairs took them out into the world to big cities, who had connections in St. Joseph and Chicago. In my childhood, they represented to me success and power. R. E. Dillon was of Irish extraction, one of the dark Irish, with glistening jet-black hair and mustache and thick eyebrows. His skin was very white, bluish on his shaven cheeks and chin. Shaving must have been a difficult process for him, because there were no smooth expanses for the razor to glide over. The bony structure of his face was prominent and unusual— High cheekbones, a bold Roman nose, a chin cut by deep lines with a hard dimple at the tip, a jutting ridge over his eyes where his curly black eyebrows grew and met. It was a face in many planes, as if the carver had whittled and modeled and indented to see how far he could go. 
Yet on meeting him, what you saw was an imperious head on a rather small, wiry man, a head held conspicuously and proudly erect, with a carriage unmistakably arrogant and consciously superior. Dylan had a musical, vibrating voice and the changeable gray eye that is peculiarly Irish. His full name, which he never used, was Robert Emmett Dillon, so there must have been a certain feeling somewhere back in his family. He was the principal banker in our town and proprietor of the large general store next to the bank. He owned farms up in the grass country and a fine ranch in the green-timbered valley of the Caw. He was, according to our standards, a rich man. His friend, J. H. Truman, was what we called a big cattleman. Truman was from Buffalo. His family were old residents there, and he had come west as a young man because he was restless and unconventional in his tastes. He was fully ten years older than Dylan, in his early fifties, when I knew him, large, heavy, very slow in his movements, not given to exercise. His countenance was as unmistakably American as Dylan's was not, but American of that period, not of this. He did not belong to the time of efficiency and advertising and progressive methods. For any form of pushing or boosting, he had a cold, unqualified contempt. All this was in his face, heavy, immobile, rather melancholy, not remarkable in any particular. But the moment one looked at him, one felt solidity, an entire absence of anything mean or small, easy carelessness, courage, a high sense of honor. These two men had been friends for ten years before I knew them, and I knew them from the time I was ten until I was thirteen. I saw them as often as I could, because they led more varied lives than the other men in our town. One could look up to them. Dylan, I believe, was the more intelligent. Truman had, perhaps, a better tradition, more background. Dylan's bank and general store stood at the corner of Main Street and a cross street, and on this cross street, two short blocks away, my family lived. On my way to and from school and going on the countless errands that I was sent upon day and night, I always passed Dylan's store. Its long red brick wall, with no windows except high overhead, ran possibly a hundred feet along the sidewalk of the cross street. The front door and show windows were on Main Street, and the bank was next door. The board sidewalk along that red brick wall was wider than any other piece of walk in town, smoother, better laid, kept in perfect repair, very good to walk on in a community where most things were flimsy. I liked the store and the brick wall and the sidewalk because they were solid and well-built, and possibly I admired Dylan and Truman for much of the same reason. They were secure and established. So many of our citizens were nervous little hopper men trying to get on. Dylan and Truman had got on. They stood with easy assurance on a deck that was their own. In the daytime, one did not often see them together. Each went about his own affairs. But every evening they were both to be found at Dylan's store. The bank, of course, was locked and dark before the sun went down. But the store was always open until ten o'clock. The clerks put in a long day. So did Dylan. He and his store were one. He never acted as salesman, and he kept a cashier in the wire-screened office at the back end of the store. But he was there to be called on. The thrifty Swedes to the north, who were his best customers, usually came to town and did their shopping after dark. They didn't squander daylight hours in farming season. 
In these evening visits with his customers and on his drives in his buckboard among the farms, Dylan learned all he needed to know about how much money it was safe to advance a farmer who wanted to feed cattle or to buy a steam thrasher or build a new barn. Every evening in winter, when I went to the post office after supper, I passed through Dylan's store instead of going around it for the warmth and cheerfulness and to catch sight of Mr. Dylan and Mr. Truman playing checkers in the office behind the wire screening. Both seated on high accountant's stools with the checkerboard on the cashier's desk before them. I knew all Dylan's clerks, and if they were not busy, I often lingered about to talk to them, sat on one of the grocery counters and watched the checker players from a distance. I remember Mr. Dillon's hand used to linger in the air above the board before he made a move. A well-kept hand, white, marked with blue veins and streaks of strong black hair. Truman's hands rested on his knees under the desk while he considered. He took a checker, set it down, then dropped his hand on his knee again. He seldom made an unnecessary movement with his hands or feet. Each of the men wore a ring on his little finger. Mr. Dillon's was a large diamond solitaire set in a gold claw. Truman's was the head of a Roman soldier cut in onyx and set in pale, twisted gold. It had been his father's, I believe. Exactly at ten o'clock, the store closed. Mr. Dillon went home to his wife and family, to his roomy, comfortable house with a garden and orchard and big stables. Mr. Truman, who had long been a widower, went to his office to begin the day over. He led a double life, and until one or two o'clock in the morning entertained the poker players of our town. After everything was shut for the night, a queer crowd drifted into Truman's back office. The company was seldom the same on two successive evenings, but there were three tireless poker players who always came. The billiard hall proprietor, with green-gold mustache and eyebrows and big white teeth. The horse trader, who smelled of horses the dandified cashier of the bank that rivaled Dillon's. The gamblers met in Truman's place because a game that went on there was respectable, was a social game, no matter how much money changed hands. If the horse trader or the crooked moneylender got overheated and broke loose a little, a look or a remark from Mr. Truman would freeze them up, and his remark was always the same. Careful of the language around here. It was never your language, but the language, though he certainly intended no pleasantry. Truman himself was not a lucky poker man. He was never ahead of the game on the whole. He played because he liked it, and he was willing to pay for his amusement. In general, he was large and indifferent about money matters, always carried a few hundred-dollar bills in his inside coat pocket, and left his coat hanging anywhere, in his office, in the bank, in the barber shop, in the cattle sheds behind the freight yard. Now, R. E. Dillon detested gambling, often dropped a contemptuous word about poker bugs before the horse trader and the billiard hall man and the cashier of the other bank. But he never made remarks of that sort in Truman's presence. He was a man who voiced his prejudices fearlessly and cuttingly, but on this and other matters he held his peace before Truman. His regard for him must have been very strong. During the winter, usually in March, the two friends always took a trip together, to Kansas City and St. Joseph. When they got ready, they packed their bags and stepped aboard a fast Santa Fe train and went. The Limited was often signaled to stop for them. 
Their excursions made some of the rest of us feel less shut away and small-townish, just as their fur overcoats and silk shirts did. They were the only men in Singleton who wore silk shirts. The other businessmen wore white shirts with detachable collars, high and stiff, or low and sprawling, which were changed much oftener than the shirts. Neither of my heroes was afraid of laundry bills. They did not wear waistcoats, but went about in their shirt sleeves in hot weather. Their suspenders were chosen with as much care as their neckties and handkerchiefs. Often when a bee stung my hand in the store, a few of them had got into the brown sugar barrel. Mr. Dillon himself moistened the sting, put baking soda on it, and bound my hand up with his pocket handkerchief. It was of the smoothest linen, and in one corner was a violet square bearing his initials, R.E.D. in white. There were never any handkerchiefs like that in my family. I cherished it until it was laundered, and I returned it with regret. It was in the spring and summer that one saw Mr. Dillon and Mr. Truman at their best. Spring began early with us. Often the first week of April was very hot. Every evening when he came back to the store after supper, Dillon had one of his clerks bring two armchairs out to the wide sidewalk that ran beside the red brick wall. Office chairs of the old-fashioned sort, with a low round back which formed a half-circle to enclose the sitter, and spreading legs, the front one slightly higher. In those chairs the two friends would spend the evening. Dillon would sit down and light a good cigar. In a few moments Mr. Truman would come across from Main Street, walking slowly, spaciously, as if he were used to a great deal of room. As he approached, Mr. Dillon would call out to him, "'Good evening, J.H. Fine weather?' J.H. would take his place in the empty chair. "'Spring in the air,' he might remark, if it were April." Then he would relight a dead cigar, which was always in his hand, seemed to belong there, like a thumb or finger. "'I drove up north today to see what the Swedes are doing,' Mr. Dillon might begin. "'They're the boys to get the early worm. They never let the ground go to sleep. Whatever moisture there is, they get the benefit of it. "'The Swedes are good farmers. I don't sympathize with the way they work their women.' "'The women like it, J.H. It's the old country way. They're accustomed to it.' and they like it. Maybe. I don't like it, Truman would reply with something like a grunt. They talked very much like this all evening, or rather Mr. Dillon talked, and Mr. Truman made an occasional observation. No one could tell just how much Mr. Truman knew about anything, because he was so consistently silent, not from diffidence, but from superiority, from a contempt for chatter, and a liking for silence, a taste for it. After they had exchanged a few remarks, he and Dylan often sat in an easy quiet for a long time, watching the passers-by, watching the wagons on the road, watching the stars. Sometimes, very rarely, Mr. Truman told a long story, and it was sure to be an interesting and unusual one. But on the whole, it was Mr. Dillon who did the talking. He had a wide-awake voice with much variety in it. Truman's was thick and low— his speech was rather indistinct and never changed in pitch or tempo. Even when he swore wickedly at the hands who were loading his cattle into freight cars, it was a mutter, a low, even growl. There was a curious attitude in men of his class and time, that of being rather above speech, as they were above any kind of fussiness or eagerness. But I knew he liked to hear Mr. Dillon talk. Anyone did. 
Dylan had such a crisp, clear enunciation, and he could say things so neatly. People would take a reprimand from him they wouldn't have taken from anyone else because he put it so well. His voice was never warm or soft. It had a cool, sparkling quality. But it could be very humorous, very kind and considerate, very teasing and stimulating. Every sentence he uttered was alive, never languid, perfunctory, slovenly, unaccented. When he made a remark, it not only meant something, it sounded like something, sounded like the thing he meant. When Mr. Dillon was closeted with the depositor in his private room in the bank, and you could not hear his words through the closed door, his voice told you exactly the degree of esteem in which he held that customer. It was interested, encouraging, deliberative, humorous, satisfied, admiring, cold, critical, haughty, contemptuous, according to the deserts and pretensions of his listener. And one could tell when the person closeted with him was a woman, a farmer's wife, or a woman who was trying to run a little business, or a country girl hunting a situation. There was a difference, something peculiarly kind and encouraging. But if it were a foolish, extravagant woman, or a girl he didn't approve of, oh, then one knew it well enough. The tone was courteous, but cold, relentless as the multiplication table. All these possibilities of voice made his evening talk in the spring dusk very interesting. Interesting for Truman and for me. I found many pretexts for lingering near them, and they never seemed to mind my hanging about. I was very quiet. I often sat on the edge of the sidewalk with my feet hanging down and played jacks by the hour when there was moonlight. On dark nights I sometimes perched on top of one of the big goods boxes. We called them store boxes. There were usually several of these standing empty on the sidewalk against the red brick wall. I liked to listen to these two because theirs was the only conversation one could hear about the streets. The older men talked of nothing but politics and their business, and the very young men's talk was entirely what they called Josh. Very personal, supposed to be funny, and really not funny at all. It was scarcely speech, but noises, snorts, giggles, yawns, sneezes, with a few abbreviated words and slang expressions which stood for a hundred things. The original Indians of the Kansas Plain had more to do with articulate speech than had our promising young men. To be sure, my two aristocrats sometimes discussed politics and joked each other about the policies and pretensions of their respective parties. Mr. Dillon, of course, was a Democrat. It was in the very frosty sparkle of his speech. And Mr. Truman was a Republican. His rear, as he walked about the town, looked a little like the walking elephant labeled G.O.P. in Puck. But each man seemed to enjoy hearing his party ridiculed, took it as a compliment. In the spring, their talk was usually about weather and planting and pasture and cattle. Mr. Dillon went about the country in his light buckboard a great deal at that season, and he knew what every farmer was doing and what his chances were, just how much he was failing behind or getting ahead. I happened to drive by Oscar Erickson's place today, and I saw as nice a lot of calves as you could find anywhere, he would begin and Erickson's history and his family would be pretty thoroughly discussed before they changed the subject. Or he might come out with something sharp. By the way, J.H., I saw an amusing sight today. I turned in at Sandy Bright's place to get water for my horse, and he had a photographer out there taking pictures of his house and barn. 
It would be more to the point if he had a picture taken of the mortgages he's put up on that farm. Truman would give a short, mirthless response, more like a cough than a laugh. Those April nights, when the darkness itself tasted dusty, or, by the special mercy of God, cool and damp, when the smell of burning grass was in the air and a sudden breeze brought the scent of wild plum blossoms, those evenings were only a restless preparation for the summer nights, nights of full liberty and perfect idleness. Then there was no school, and one's family never bothered about where one was. My parents were young and full of life, glad to have the children out of the way. All day long there had been the excitement that intense heat produces in some people, a mild drunkenness made of sharp contrasts, thirst and cold water, the blazing stretch of Main Street and the cool of the brick stores when one dived into them. By nightfall one was ready to be quiet. My two friends were always in their best form on those moonlit summer nights, and their talk covered a wide range. I suppose there were moonless nights, and dark ones with but a silver shaving and pale stars in the sky, just as in the spring, but I remember them all as flooded by the rich indolence of a full moon, or a half-moon set in an uncertain blue. Then Truman and Dylan would sit with their coats off and have a supply of fresh handkerchiefs to mop their faces. They were more largely and positively themselves. One could distinguish their features, the stripes on their shirts, the flash of Mr. Dylan's diamond, but their shadows made two dark masses on the white sidewalk. The brick wall behind them, faded almost pink by the burning of successive summers, took on a carnelian hue at night. Across the street, which was merely a dusty road, lay an open space with a few stunted box-elder trees where the farmers left their wagons and teams when they came to town. Beyond this space stood a row of frail wooden buildings, due to be pulled down any day, tilted, crazy, with outside stairs going up to rickety second-story porches that sagged in the middle. They had once been white, but were now gray, with faded blue doors along the wavy upper porches. These abandoned buildings, an eyesore by day, melted together into a curious pile in the moonlight, became an immaterial structure of velvet white and glossy blackness, with here and there a faint smear of blue door or a tilted patch of sage green that had once been a shutter. The road, just in front of the sidewalk where I sat and played jacks, would be ankle-deep in dust and seemed to drink up the moonlight like folds of velvet. It drank up sound, too, muffled the wagon wheels and hoof-beats, lay soft and meek like the last residuum of material things, the soft bottom resting place. Nothing in the world, not snow mountains or blue seas, is so beautiful in moonlight as the soft, dry summer roads in a farming country, roads where the white dust falls back from the slow wagon wheel. Wonderful things do happen even in the dullest places, in the cornfields and the wheat fields. Sitting there on the edge of the sidewalk one summer night, my feet hanging in the warm dust, I saw an occultation of Venus. Only the three of us were there. It was a hot night, and the clerks had closed the store and gone home. Mr. Dillon and Mr. Truman waited on a little while to watch. It was a very blue night, breathless and clear, not the smallest cloud from horizon to horizon. Everything up there overhead seemed as usual. It was the familiar face of a summer night sky. But presently we saw one bright star moving. Mr. Dillon called to me, 
told me to watch what was going to happen, as I might never chance to see it again in my lifetime. That big star certainly got nearer and nearer the moon, very rapidly, too, until there was not the width of your hand between them, now the width of two fingers. Then it passed directly into the moon and about the middle of its girth, absolutely disappeared. The star we had been watching was gone. We waited. I do not know how long, but it seemed to me about fifteen minutes. Then we saw a bright wart on the other side of the moon, but for a second only— the machinery up there worked fast. While the two men were exclaiming and telling me to look, the planet swung clear of the golden disk. A rift of blue came between them and widened very fast. The planet did not seem to move, but that inky blue space between it and the moon seemed to spread. The thing was over. My friends stayed on long past their usual time and talked about eclipses and other such matters. Let me see, Mr. Truman remarked slowly. They reckon the moon's about 250,000 miles away from us. I wonder how far that star is. I don't know, J.H., and I really don't much care. When we can get the tramps off the railroad and manage to run this town with one fancy house instead of two and have a federal government that is as honest as a good banking business, then it will be plenty of time to turn our attention to the star. Mr. Truman chuckled and took his cigar from between his teeth. "'Maybe the stars will throw some light on all that, if we get the run of them,' he said humorously. Then he added, "'Mustn't be a reformer, R.E. Nothing in it. That's the only time you ever get off on the wrong foot. Life is what it always has been, always will be. No use to make a fuss.' He got up, said, "'Good night, R.E.' Said good night to me, too, because this had been an unusual occasion— and went down the sidewalk with his wide, sailor-like tread, as if he were walking the deck of his own ship. When Dylan and Truman went to St. Joseph, or as we called it, St. Joe, they stopped at the same hotel, but their diversions were very dissimilar. Mr. Dylan was a family man and a good Catholic. He behaved in St. Joe very much as if he were at home. His sister was mother superior of a convent there, and he went to see her often. The nuns made much of him, and he enjoyed their admiration and all the ceremony with which they entertained him. When his two daughters were going to the convent school, he used to give theater parties for them, inviting their friends. Mr. Truman's way of amusing himself must have tried his friend's patience. Dylan liked to regulate other people's affairs if they needed it. Mr. Truman had a lot of poker-playing friends among the commission men in St. Joe, and he sometimes dropped a good deal of money. He was supposed to have rather questionable women friends there, too. The grasshopper men of our town used to say that Truman was financial advisor to a woman who ran a celebrated sporting house. Mary Trent, her name was. She must have been a very unusual woman. She had credit with all the banks and never got into any sort of trouble. She had formerly been headmistress of a girls' finishing school and knew how to manage young women. It was probably a fact that Truman knew her and found her interesting, as did many another sound businessman of that time. Mr. Dillon must have shut his ears to these rumors, a measure of the great value he put on Truman's companionship. Though they did not see much of each other on these trips, they immensely enjoyed taking them together. They often dined together at the end of the day and afterwards went to the theater. 
They both loved the theater, not this play or that actor, but the theater, whether they saw Hamlet or Pinafore. It was an age of good acting, and the drama held a more dignified position in the world than it holds today. After Dylan and Truman had come home from the city, they used sometimes to talk over the plays they had seen, recalling the great scenes and fine effects. Occasionally, an item in the Kansas City Star would turn their talk to the stage. J.H., I see by the paper that Edwin Booth is very sick, Mr. Dillon announced one evening as Truman came up to take the empty chair. Yes, I noticed, Truman sat down and lit his dead cigar. He's not a young man anymore. A long pause. Dillon always seemed to know when the pause would be followed by a remark and waited for it. The first time I saw Edwin Booth was in Buffalo. It was in Richard II, and it made a great impression on me at the time. Another pause. I don't know that I'd care to see him in that play again. I like tragedy, but that play's a little too tragic, something very black about it. I think I prefer Hamlet. They had seen Mary Anderson in St. Louis once and talked of it for years afterwards. Mr. Dillon was very proud of her because she was a Catholic girl and called her Our Mary. It was curious that a third person who had never seen these actors or read the plays could get so much of the essence of both from the comments of two businessmen who use none of the language in which such things are usually discussed, who merely reminded each other of moments here and there in the action. But they saw the play over again and they talked of it, and perhaps whatever is seen by the narrator as he speaks is sensed by the listener, quite irrespective of words. This transference of experience went further. In some way the lives of these two men came across to me as they talked, the strong, bracing reality of successful, large-minded men who had made their way in the world when business was still a personal adventure. Part 2 Mr. Dillon went to Chicago once a year to buy goods for his store. Truman would usually accompany him as far as St. Joe, but no farther. He dismissed Chicago as too big. He didn't like to be one of the crowd, didn't feel at home in a city where he wasn't recognized as J. H. Truman. It was one of these trips to Chicago that brought about the end, for me and for them, a stupid, senseless, commonplace end. Being a Democrat, already somewhat tainted by the free silver agitation, one spring Dillon delayed his visit to Chicago in order to be there for the Democratic Convention. It was the convention that first nominated Bryan. On the night after his return from Chicago, Mr. Dillon was seated in his chair on the sidewalk, surrounded by a group of men who wanted to hear all about the nomination of a man from a neighbor state. Mr. Truman came across the street in his leisurely way, greeted Dillon, and asked him how he had found Chicago, whether he had had a good trip. Mr. Dillon must have been annoyed because Truman didn't mention the convention. He threw back his head rather haughtily. Well, J.H., since I saw you last, we found a great leader in this country and a great orator. There was a frosty sparkle in his voice that presupposed opposition, like the feint of a boxer getting ready. Great windbag, muttered Truman. He sat down in his chair, but I noticed that he did not settle himself and cross his legs as usual. Mr. Dillon gave an artificial laugh. It's nothing against a man to be a fine orator. All the great leaders have been eloquent. 
This convention was a remarkable occasion. It gave the Democratic Party a rebirth. Gave it a black eye and a blind spot, I'd say, commented Truman. He didn't raise his voice, but he spoke with more heat than I had ever heard from him. After a moment, he added, I guess Grover Cleveland must be a sick man, must feel like he'd taken a lot of trouble for nothing. Mr. Dillon ignored these thrusts and went on telling the group around him about the convention, but there was a special nimbleness and exactness in his tongue, a chill politeness in his voice that meant anger. Presently, he turned again to Mr. Truman, as if he could now trust himself. It was one of the great speeches of history, J.H., our grandchildren will have to study it in school, as we did Patrick Henry's. Glad I haven't got any grandchildren if they'd be brought up on that sort of tall talk, said Mr. Truman. Sounds like a schoolboy had written it. Absolutely nothing back of it but an unsound theory. Mr. Dillon's laugh made me shiver. It was like a thin glitter of danger. He arched his curly eyebrows provokingly. We'll have four years of currency reform anyhow. By the end of that time, you old dyed-in-the-wool Republicans will be thinking differently. The underdog is going to have a chance. Mr. Truman shifted in his chair. That's no way for a banker to talk. He spoke very low. The Democrats will have a long time to be sorry they ever turned pops. No use talking to you while your Irish is up. I'll wait till you cool off. He rose and walked away, less deliberately than usual, and Mr. Dillon, watching his retreating figure, laughed haughtily and disagreeably. He asked the grain elevator man to take the vacated chair. The group about him grew, and he sat expounding the reforms proposed by the Democratic candidate until a late hour. For the first time in my life, I listened with breathless interest to a political discussion. Whoever Mr. Dillon failed to convince, he convinced me. I grasped it at once. That gold had been responsible for most of the miseries and inequalities of the world, that it had always been the club the rich and cunning held over the poor, and that the free and unlimited coinage of silver would remedy all this. Dillon declared that young Mr. Bryan had looked like the patriots of old when he faced and challenged high finance with, "'You shall not press this crown of thorns upon the brow of labor. You shall not crucify mankind upon a cross of gold.'" I thought that magnificent. I thought the cornfields would show them a thing or two back there. R. E. Dillon had never taken an aggressive part in politics. But from that night on, the Democratic candidate and the free silver plank were the subject of his talks with his customers and depositors. He drove about the country convincing the farmers, went to the neighboring towns to use his influence with the merchants— organized the Bryan Club and the Bryan Ladies Quartet in our county, contributed largely to the campaign fund. This was all a new line of conduct for Mr. Dillon, and it sat unsteadily on him. Even his voice became unnatural. There was a sting of comeback in it. His new character made him more like other people and took away from his special personal quality. I wonder whether it was not Truman more than Bryan who put such an edge on him. While all these things were going on, Truman kept to his own office. He came to Dillon's bank on business, but he did not come back to the sidewalk, as I put it to myself. He waited and said nothing, but he looked grim. After a month or so, when he saw that this thing was not going to blow over, 
When he heard how Dillon had been talking to representative men all over the county and saw the figure he had put down for the campaign fund, then Truman remarked to some of his friends that a banker had no business to commit himself to a scatterbrained financial policy which would destroy credit. The next morning, Mr. Truman went to the bank across the street, the rival of Dillon's, and wrote a check on Dillon's bank for the amount of my balance. He wasn't the sort of man who would ever know what his balance was. He merely kept it big enough to cover emergencies. That afternoon, the Merchants National Bank took the check over to Dillon on its collecting rounds, and by night the word was all over town that Truman had changed his bank. After this, there would be no going back, people said. To change your bank was one of the most final things you could do. The little unsuccessful men were pleased, as they always are at the destruction of anything strong and fine. All through the summer and the autumn of that campaign, Mr. Dillon was away a great deal. When he was at home, he took his evening airing on the sidewalk, and there was always a group of men about him, talking of the coming election. That was the most exciting presidential campaign people could remember. I often passed this group on my way to the post office, but there was no temptation to linger now. Mr. Dillon seemed like another man, and my zeal to free humanity from the cross of gold had cooled. Mr. Truman I seldom saw. When he passed me on the street, he nodded kindly. The election and Bryan's defeat did nothing to soften Dillon. He had been sure of a Democratic victory. I believe he felt almost as if Truman were responsible for the triumph of Hannah and McKinley. At least he knew that Truman was exceedingly well satisfied, and that was bitter to him. He seemed to me sarcastic and sharp all the time now. I don't believe self-interest would ever have made a breach between Dillon and Truman. Neither would have taken advantage of the other. If a combination of circumstances had made it necessary that one or the other should take a loss in money or prestige, I think Truman would have pocketed the loss. That was his way. It was his code, moreover. A gentleman pocketed his gains mechanically, in the day's routine, but he pocketed losses punctiliously, with a sharp, if bitter, relish. I believe now, as I believed then, that this was a quarrel of principle. Truman looked down on anyone who could take the reasoning of the populist party seriously. He was a perfectly direct man, and he showed his contempt. That was enough. It lost me my special pleasure of summer nights, the old stories of the early West that sometimes came to the surface, the minute biographies of the farming people, the clear, detailed, illuminating accounts of all that went on in the great crop-growing, cattle-feeding world, and the silence, the strong, rich, outflowing silence between two friends that was as full and satisfying as the moonlight. I was never to know its like again. After that rupture, nothing went well with either of my two great men. Things were out of true, the equilibrium was gone— Formerly, when they used to sit in their old places on the sidewalk, two black figures with patches of shadow below, they seemed like two bodies held steady by some law of balance, an unconscious relation like that between the earth and the moon. It was this mathematical harmony which gave a third person pleasure. Before the next presidential campaign came around, Mr. Dillon died, a young man still, very suddenly, of pneumonia. We didn't know that he was seriously ill until one of his clerks came running to our house to tell us he was dead. The same clerk, 
half out of his wits, it looked like the end of the world to him, ran on to tell Mr. Truman. Mr. Truman thanked him. He called his confidential man and told him to order flowers from Kansas City. Then he went to his house, informed his housekeeper that he was going away on business, and packed his bag. That same night he boarded the Santa Fe Limited and didn't stop until he was in San Francisco. He was gone all spring. His confidential clerk wrote him letters every week about the business and the new calves and got telegrams in reply. Truman never wrote letters. When Mr. Truman at last came home, he stayed only a few months. He sold out everything he owned to a stranger from Kansas City, his feeding ranch, his barns and sheds, his house and town lots. It was a terrible blow to me. Now only the common, everyday people would be left. I used to walk mournfully up and down before his office while all these deeds were being signed. There were usually lawyers and notaries inside. But once, when he happened to be alone, he called me in, asked me how old I was now and how far along I had got in school. His face and voice were more than kind, but he seemed absent-minded, as if he were trying to recall something. Presently he took from his watch chain a red seal I had always admired, reached for my hand, and dropped the piece of carnelian into my palm. For a keepsake, he said evasively. When the transfer of his property was completed, Mr. Truman left us for good. He spent the rest of his life among the golden hills of San Francisco. He moved into the St. Francis Hotel when it was first built and had an office in a high building at the top of what is now Powell Street. There he read his letters in the morning and played poker at night. I've heard a man whose offices were next to his tell how Truman used to sit tilted back in his desk chair, a half-consumed cigar in his mouth, morning after morning, apparently doing nothing, watching the bay and the ferry boats across a line of wind-wracked eucalyptus trees. He died at the St. Francis about nine years after he left our part of the world. The breaking up of that friendship between two men who scarcely noticed my existence was a real loss to me, and has ever since been a regret. More than once, in southern countries where there is a smell of dust and dryness in the air and the nights are intense, I have come upon a stretch of dusty white road drinking up the moonlight beside a blind wall, and have felt a sudden sadness. Perhaps it was not until the next morning that I knew why, and then only because I had dreamed of Mr. Dillon or Mr. Truman in my sleep. When that old scar is occasionally touched by chance, it rouses the old uneasiness, the feeling of something broken that could so easily have been mended, of something delightful that was senselessly wasted, of a truth that was accidentally distorted, one of the truths we want to keep. Thanks for joining us. Tune in to another session of Just Listen by visiting your Nashville Public Library website at library.nashville.org.